I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love was real. Near you, I long to be. The birds are singing, it is long time. The banjo strumming soft and low. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. I am currently reading Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. Uh, this is, I guess, the fourth volume by Lewis that I've read in this this podcast. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting novel. Um, so t- today I'm going to be talking about chapter six through, uh, no, sorry, seven through 14, seven through 14 or so. Um, which takes us really to the, about to the middle point of the novel. Um, so, uh, I talked a lot in the last episode about like Main Street, the, you know, the setting and the main character of Carol, um, um, and Carol Kennicott and her husband a little bit and their relationship and her encounter with this town of Gophers Prairie. So Main Street, Gophers Prairie, kind of, we can use it interchangeably in this book. Um, and, you know, my, my thoughts on it was, you know, this was like a familiar experience to me, how someone kind of comes into, you know, after being educated, enters into the small town environment and thinks, well, maybe here I can do something. Maybe here I can be significant. Maybe here I can be important. I can reform it. And, you know, you're not quite in tune with the values of that community. And that leads to awkward situations. But there's, you, you always think, oh, if only this place could be enlightened, right? And I, I talked about experiences that I've kind of seen or even witnessed myself. And this happened when this happened to me, you know, whether it's like becoming an atheist or or even just going to college and then coming back to your hometown with people who maybe didn't go to college and you kind of losing some ability to connect with them that's not quite the story of of uh carol kennicott she's uh actually was was always kind of the, of the more liberal middle class um, um mindset you know background when before she went to college but still i think overall the experience holds and that, and I guess the comparison holds. Then we get in the second hundred pages. We get kind of deeper into Gophers Prairie. We meet the characters a little bit more. The the people who live in Gophers Prairie. I mean, we were introduced to some of them before, but they were just like, you know, how if you meet like a hundred people, who do you remember? Right? You shake hands, you exchange names, but you don't remember much. But over time, you get to know who these people are, right? It's like if you start a new job, that happens. So that's what sort of happens to us as readers. We start to identify a few characters uh, that we, like uh, one, v, uh, was it Vita Sherwin was one who becomes a friend of, of Carol. We meet the librarian. We meet uh, Bordstrom, who's one of the more interesting characters in the novel, um, and, and others. And we get kind of a closer look at the community through these characters and we we start to get closer to i think uh lewis's thesis which is uh that there's a lot like although they're very nice on the surface there's kind of a toxic underbelly to main street you know and i I emphasize a lot how you know these people aren't really offensive on the surface but i kind of held the 
you know, the condition that, you know, maybe in the end, Lewis is going to like be critical of these people because that's what we're used to in his novels. He's good at exposing hypocrisy. That's kind of something he did in most of the books I read of his before. And, um, you know, or criticism of conformity. And that's, that happens in these chapters to be sure that a lot of the, you know, we learn that this is a much, not just a homogenous community, its values are really, really white wing. It's very uh, much a group think kind of place. Uh, so this is kind of an experiment in group think to some degree where conformity reigns supreme and people of other points of view don't uh, really fit in. And that's kind of where we start, right? In chapter seven, we were winter comes and we're introduced to uh, a nonconformist in Gopher Prairie named um, Bordstrom. And he's like from Sweden. He's called the Red Swede. Uh, and he's like the handyman. So he's very busy when winter comes because he's, he puts up like the shutters. He winterizes the homes. So he's, he's kind of a busy guy and he hangs around the rich community during, um, during this part of the year. And we learn a little bit about him. We learn generally about winter's, uh, winter in Gophers Prairie and the changes it brings to the town. Um, so th we we're going to say more about Bordstrom later. We're just sort of introduced to him briefly here. Um, but then we see the meeting of the Jolly 17. And this is such an important chapter. Um, this is still chapter 7. Where, remember, Carol wants to like build community. She wants to kind of modernize the culture. She wants to uplift it. And uh, so she goes to like the ladies club. And the Jolly 17 is kind of like a... a there's a different group she goes to. Some she sort of forms and some that she just joins. Like she, at some point joins a book club. Called the, uh, what is it? The, uh, oh, it's Thantopolis, something like that, the club. That's like the book club. Um, but here it's the Jolly 17, which is like a more of a upper class social club that she attends. And she's talking with these other rich ladies. And, and we got to admit, Carol Kennicott is, she's not poor, right? She's got, she hires servants, she's upper middle class. Her husband's a doctor and all that. So she's hanging around with these, these, these rich ladies. And there's a lot about class here because she does kind of interact with different levels of gopher prairie society. And like, I know, the myth of kind of a broad middle class is really deconstructed by Lewis quite uh, systematically here. Um, I think it does a pretty good job of it. But anyways, the meeting at the Jolly 17 kind of club, which I think it's an informal name for just this group of ladies, is... You know, they have different conversations. They're playing bridge, right? Uh, kind of a bougie game, I suppose. Anyways, they have these conversations and Carol proceeds to offend them. Um, and the real tension here is when she, she brings up a couple topics. Like the first is she, she talks about, they're talking about maids and Carol says like, oh, we should treat our maids well and pay them like a living wage. And they're like, Oh, you can't do that because if you start, they'll like inflate the wages for maids and maids will start expecting higher wages from us and we're not going to do that. So they're kind of like, how dare you try to raise the wage for the maids that work for you? How disgusting. And she's like, well, you know, they're, they work hard and they should be paid well. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. You got you to, we got to depress the wages for the maids. It's kind of gross. Um, and she kind of gets out of that conversation, sort of, not unscathed, but she sort of gets out of it. And then she talks uh, to the librarian. She's like, oh, the librarian. She was a librarian, right, back in St. Paul. 
and they talk about very a few things and she says i think really think the greatest duty of the librarian is to get people to read i don't know if she meant like expanding literacy or just like you know encouraging kids to read but either way it, it amounts to the same thing and the librarian says oh no no oh, oh, the big job of the librarian is to keep the books intact and and so she had, she proceeded to offend the librarian who's someone she could have had a connection with from her job so she kind of leaves the Jolly 17 meeting pretty defeated and isolated. Um, and so this takes us to chapter eight, which is really two people warning Carol about her reputation in town. Uh, this meeting with the Jolly 17 kind of undermined her reputation, which already wasn't that good. She was already being seen as kind of uppity. There's a lot of rumors about her clothes coming in from Minnesota, or not, sorry, from Minneapolis. Um, there's rumors about that she's kind of too good for people and they're passing around. And so her friend Vita Sherwin comes in and warns her about this and actually says like, this is what the women are saying about you. They're saying you're uppity. They're saying you think you're better than them. They're saying you're, you're insulting them and all this. And she even brings up the maid stuff. And so she's just warning Carol not to do that. And later on, Will makes essentially the same warning to Carol saying, you know, like don't rock the boat too much. And remember when, before they got married, he promised her, like, oh, we, we need you to help bring sort of civilization and progress to Gopher's Prairie. But, you know, it turns out that that may have just been an excuse to get her to marry him because, um, you know, who knows? Maybe he was being earnest at the time. But when it actually comes to living in the town, he's, he, he goes with the town. He goes with the values of the town. And this is where Carol's kind of stuck because Carol doesn't isn't happy with the values of the town and she wants to change them and and she's kind of flaky about this she has different interests she goes back and forth throughout the course of the novel about what her goals are and ambitions with the town but generally she does want to change things so you go into a new workplace and you know the culture is kind of shitty for some reason you know and you want to change it well, if you start coming in just after moving, after coming into the workplace and start asking to change things, you kind of offend people, right? Not just your bosses, but sometimes your coworkers. Um, and so you keep your mouth shut for a few years, right? And you accept it. But Carol doesn't do that. Carol it, is kind of uppity in a way and uh, disregarding a lot of the culture of Gopher's Prairie. And there's a lot, but there's a lot of shit in Gopher's Prairie culture too. I mean, it is kind of mediocre. It is about mediocrity. It is conservative. It is Republican. Like they make the joke that Bornstrom is the only Democrat in town, right? And some people want to get rid of the Catholics and say, oh, this is, we don't want Catholics in this town. Um, but anyways, so after this, we get into chapter nine, which is really about Carol being increasingly lonely and isolated and self-conscious over her lack of over the ladies of Gopher's Prairie and the rumors she's been hearing about them. And she kind of says, okay, I'll just give up on these ideas of reforming the town. I just want to live here without being like the subject of the gaze of the neighbors. Um, and we can sympathize with this. She, there's a great line here uh, that Sinclair uh, writes. Uh, Sinclair Lewis, I mean. It's Upton Sinclair. I hope I don't make that mistake. Uh, I mean, Sinclair Lewis, the, the, the line he says here, the village peeped at her, uh, which is not an individual peeped at her. The whole village, the whole village had their eyes on her. 
that's how she felt and at the end of the chapter she has to close her drapes because she feels just the gaze of the community in on her and whether that's delusional or not i don't know but there you know there's truth to it it seems there, there are people looking at her and talking to her in fact there's this teenager cy bogart who like is hanging out near her and they you know she's kind of suspicious about this guy and his friends and then she overhears them talking about her and they're like oh yeah she's super hot but she's super uppity and you know she's kind of a bitch and and, and they, they they kind of gossip about her and she's here's overhears this she's quite horrified by this um and so this leads her to kind of like close the drapes and make sure people don't like look in on her anymore and, and in a later chapter there's talk also about you know I think it's also the Sonny Bogart character talking about how weird she is in the home. I, I think there's a wonderful little moment where it's like she seems normal to uh, barely normal. I mean, she's got her weird ideas and her ambitions, but you know, the way she's described in the home is, is being kind of awkward and weird and doing strange things in the home. And maybe that's just the teenage perception of what the housewife's duties are, but I don't know something, something kind of goofy is going on there, but it's fun to read. Um, anyways, he, she does just at this moment where she's probably at one of her lowest points in the book, she gets an escape and she's able to visit Will's, her and Will, Will are able to visit Will's mom up in the Northern Minnesota. And this kind of improves her mood a little bit. Um, and she comes back and Vita says, like all the women have stopped gossiping about you. You don't really have to worry too much. Things have changed. So it's kind of escaping the town for a while, help put her off the radar of the community. And that made her calmed her down so you know there's a lot of ups and downs in this novel and this is one of the i guess the downs where things begin to calm down a little bit now in chapter 10 i think it gets interesting the book really gets interesting because in chapter 7 she really explored the upper middle class the rich the elite the 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 jolly 17 group and in chapter 10 she she actually goes out and explores the slums and this is the first time we get real clear evidence that gophers prairie isn't the classless uh, middle middling utopia that that is presents itself as and as will sort of presents it as you know yeah mediocre mediocre in some ways but basically middling but they have slums and uh like the poor side of town and she goes to visit it walking around and she meets Bordstrom, who we met before in connection to being a handyman getting the houses ready for winter um and he's an interesting bloke uh you know, obviously a Swede, called the Red Swede, maybe because of his politics, but, you know, he's not like a communist. He's called to talk, he said, like, he said he's the only Democrat in town, which doesn't make him much of a communist, even in, especially in the early 19th century, even more so than now. Um, but he's an atheist and he's educated and he reads a lot and he's like, he works when he wants. He, he's, he's kind of an independent contractor, so... He kind of just works when he wants and the rest of the time he reads he gets by you know working once in a while there's another character she meets too later on i'll talk about him in a few chapters who also is able to sort of evade work and she's these are characters she's oddly fascinated with i don't know if like i get this impression of will is never home right he's always at, at work and the two male characters she seems to have the biggest connection to are both people who seem to uh reject work in some way um, so I think there might be an argument to be made about that. Um, but but Bornstrom, someone who doesn't fully reject work, but he doesn't want to work the eight-hour shift. He, he, he likes being an independent contractor. He's got his busy seasons, but 
most of the time he can get by on as few hours of work and he spends the rest of the time reading uh reading politics literature things like that and he's really proud of his kind of self-education and this really she really digs him because of this not in a, not in a, a sexual way necessarily that's a later another character but um she really likes him and when she goes home that night she she tries to get will to to like poetry and she's like oh, let's read poems together and she's like well if i can't enlighten the town maybe i can actually transport uh the consciousness of my husband to some higher level of of existence or something and it it's an utter failure so um things are really getting interesting from my point of view in this at this point in the novel um where we we kind of have quite a lot laid on the table by this point that there's class hip, there's class society uh that carol does ha have a bit of a wandering eye and she's got that courage to kind of explore outside of her comfort zone a little bit and um you know and she, she's already suspicious in the town by most of the women think she's kind of suspicious so there's a lot set up here for later drama, it seems to me. Um, and uh, this brings us to the the book club that she uh, the joins, and and it's so disappointing. I don't know if you've ever been in a book club. I really haven't really ever done the book club thing. I know some of my people, in my family have. I've I've heard of people doing this. Uh, I can't imagine they're ever going to turn out good, uh, but people do them. Uh, for whatever reason I, I get the sense like people read like the trendy stuff right and but i even i haven't been probably like a marxist reading group so i don't know maybe there are good book clubs out there i like podcasts you know i, I listen to the podcast if i like the book i'm interested i want to know more about it um but i don't know if i want to sit with a group of bougie people talking about you know nk jemison's next book or whatever um or whatever oprah worse whatever oprah um, recommends and we get really really boring english lit analysis like they're like oh we're we're gonna cover what are we gonna do today and they're like oh we're gonna cover english poems and and carol's like well for what period and they're like oh no we're gonna cover english poetry in, in one day and each woman kind of talks about the poets and says oh this poet lived this many years he wrote so many poems and he, he you know this is the most famous very mundane stuff like they basically did the wikipedia search copy down the first paragraph wrote it down and presented it to the group and everyone you know politely claps and it's bad it's really really bad. it's embarrassing and then the one interesting way the, the conversation among this group finally gets interesting when they start to criticize some of the poets like byron and burns i think byron was picked on the most here as being like decadent the mo the decadence of modernity um and and carol here she's already kind of wounded She's tw once bitten, twice shy about these ladies. And so she kind of goes along with this, even though she knows it's a shit analysis and boring and crap and a waste of her time. She goes along with it and she politely claps and, and doesn't want to rock the boat. She'll, she'll try to rock the boat a little bit later, but um, she, she kind of suppresses that for now. Um, now, she does have this desire to go like, she says, well, maybe I can't fix the culture. Maybe I can just fix the architecture. She's like, well, maybe we can like start a, a program to rebuild the town hall, which was like decadent and old. Maybe not decadent is the wrong word, but 
old and decrepit. That's what I was thinking. Um, old town hall. She wants to fix it up. And she says, this could be the center of a revived Gopher Prairie. Right? She wants to kind of gentrify uh, downtown Main Street. Um, and she eventually goes, talks to one of the rich people in town and says, well, you have all this money. And, and it would only take like half your money to, to be a down payment on kind of revitalizing the town. Why don't you do it? I mean, essentially, she is asking for a rich man to help gentrify the town. It's 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 a little bit embarrassing from our context. I don't know if that was Sinclair Lewis's point of view at the time, but from our what we know about urban development, it's hard not to see this as just an effort at gentrification, especially when we were just introduced to like the slums in the previous chapter. But she does bring this up and. She doesn't pick on the poetry, but she brings up this thing about fixing up town hall. And then they're like, others are saying, well, I think we should focus our efforts on uniting the Protestant churches because, you know, we got to stop the Catholics. Now, the Protestant Catholic divide is interesting because, I mean, of course, you had the German immigrants and Germans could be Catholic or Protestant. And that's why you had a lot of Catholic communities in this part of the world, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, those kinds of places. But in the context of the early 20th century, you have this massive immigration from Catholic countries, kind of changing the nature of America. Uh, but a lot of these people end up settling in the cities, like the Irish, Italians, Poles, you know, the people from Catholic countries, they settle in the cities mostly. So you get more of a religious cultural divide as the population of Catholics becomes more urban. And, and the, like, the flyover country, if you will, becomes like more intensely Protestant in its identity. Um, but of course, you got all these different Protestant churches. So one idea was well, we can confront the Catholics by by having a united church. Uh, I don't know much about this movement. I think I've heard a little bit about it before. Obviously, it didn't succeed, but there were like some groups like, is it the Unitarians or whatever? I don't know that maybe try to do it in a different way by changing, like creating like a much more basic theology. But some were saying like, well, there's no reason Methodists and Baptists and Lutherans can't really be one church because essentially their theology is, is close enough. Um, and that's what they end up talking about. And that's not what Carol wants at all. Carol's much more interested in a more uh, different types of reform and change. Um, but anyways, this leads to Carol then reducing her goal. She's like, okay, I can't reform Town Hall. Maybe I can just kind of remodel the restroom, like some public restroom that's really skanky. Um, and at one meeting, she actually brings up labor movements and people get really offended by this. So this is another sign that there's really kind of a to politically toxic undercurrent in Main Street. Very, very conservative. That Like this idea, oh, we, we treat our workers well. We don't want any of those damn anarchists and communists messing things up. And how dare you, you know, we're going to read the Wikipedia entries of poets. We're not going to, we don't want to talk about sociology and psychology and uh, labor movement and socialism. No, 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 no. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about Burns and we're going to say what a nice guy Burns was. Even though he was like a total player, right? Wasn't Burns like... I mean, they talked about Byron as a decadent player, maybe because maybe his sexuality was was more um, diverse than Burns. But Burns was a total player, wasn't he? Like he had all he was he was banging all the farm girls up in Scotland. Uh, at least I remember some reading that somewhere. 
But she does try to bring up their labor movement in one of these meetings. It's other things like sociology and all that. And they're like, nope, we're not going to talk about that. Um, it's just the overall conservatism of the town really is, is brought clear to us at this point in the story. Um, now, this is when she finally goes to the countryside and she meets Bjornstrom. Uh, or she goes to see Bjornstrom. So she's already met him, sorry. But she goes to see him again. And she really digs his freedom. And she really, he's like saying, oh, I spend the summers just chilling at, you know, out in the countryside. And, and she wants that. So, she, you know, now Will has the money to maybe give her like a summer home or something. In fact, I think they, they do visit that at some point. But you really see her, she's, you know, she kind of, there's a pendulum here with Carol Kennicott where she's sometimes really interested in reforming things and sometimes she's really interested in, like sometimes she gets like bitten and she's like oh i'm gonna shut up for a while but eventually she gets pulled back to the other side of reform so for instance that happens in the next chapter chapter 12 which is set around her one year anniversary of her marriage and she meets the perrys who are like the, some of the first settlers in gopher prairie like the old pioneer days and She's like, cool, I can meet the pioneers. I can learn some history, do some oral history, whatever. She talks to them and she finds fascinating. She actually becomes very interested in pioneer life. And she's like, maybe that's what we need to do here in Gopher Prairie, not make it a, a mini New York City. Instead, try to revive its old pioneer spirit. That will get us out of this rut of mediocrity. Because these prairies, they're certainly not mediocre. They help build this town. Um, but she eventually finds out that they're also very, very conservative and, and sort of banal too. So she's sort of disappointed by them. Uh, and now we get to chapter 13, which is the interaction between her and a guy named Guy Pollock. This isn't the first time they've met, but this is the first time she gets to know about him. Uh, and he's kind of like a Bornstrom because even though he's more higher class, um, both kind of shun work or at least have a much more flexible work ethic bornstrom only wants to work some seasons he takes the summers off um guy pollock pollock guy pollock he you know he was kind of a you know he was working in like the cities and kind of got burned out by that got invited to help start a firm in gopher prairie and when he was there he, he even said there's a great line where he says like my coat my the, my partner got mad at me because i would loaf for five hours and then do my work in one hour you know and if you've ever been in an office environment you know about this like if you can do the job in an hour you're forced to kind of stretch that out so you go to facebook go to the water cooler you stretch it out because you have to be there the eight hours, right? And if you're not constantly working or you're not seem to be constantly working, people are suspicious of you, right? But who the fuck cares if you get the work done, right? That's why I think like this COVID thing has been so potentially radical and revolutionary is it really changed people's attitudes towards work. People working at home found like, hey, I can do this work in two hours in the afternoon. It means I can have time for my family. I don't have to, like the time it takes me to commute to work, I can do my work at home. Like, why, why would I choose to go back to the office? Guy Pollock was kind of one of these guys. But he warns her about something. He says, I have the village virus, which is uh, he gets sucked in by the uh, mediocrity in a way. 
Um, she, he talks about how like he was into symphonies and opera and stuff back in the cities, but when he got to Gopher Prairie, he starts to read vulgar crime novels and things. Um, and he says you can't escape. It's something you really can't escape because it it's so it's hard to get out of that. So it's like a Main Street is sort of a black hole that sucks you in. But I actually think Guy Pollock has found a lot of freedom in Gopher Prairie that he probably didn't have in the city. So I'm not sure I totally agree with what Sinclair Lewis is trying to do here and the way he uh, with, with his character. I think there's a more complex way to talk about um, Pollock, but. I don't know, who knows? Maybe I'll know more what he's trying to do when I over the next three sections of the book. Um, now, the other th big thing here is there's a lot of sexual tension here. They're basically, he, he's hitting on her pretty hard, and she's b pretty receptive to his advances. Now, she's not going to sleep with him. It's not, that's pretty clear that's not going to happen. But it does get pretty hot for a while. And Guy Pollock is pretty open. He's like, yeah, like, we, we could bang, I suppose. And and she's like, oh, no, I, you know, it's all coded language, you know. There's some degree of propriety here, but it's really thinly veiled. I mean, so it's a pretty hot conversation they have. But, um, you know, and she's like, oh, I can't be seen with you. And he's like, well, big deal. You know, he's kind of beyond the gossip at this point in his career in Gopher Prairie. So he's where... He's much more liberated, I think, than, than Carol. Um, partially because he doesn't have a wife. He's not married. So he's maybe outside of some of the concerns. But anyways, that's Guy Pollock. And then the final chapter I want to talk about today, which is um, chapter 14, is a big fight between Will and Carol over... Basically, the basically everything, all all the frustrations Carol's had come out in this fight they have, and and, and I, I don't I don't want to get into it too much. They go back and forth, but it kind of summarizes all her frustrations, and it's going to um, lead to Will changing things, and he does compromise. He says, "Okay, you're a little restrained. You need a little bit more resources. You need a little bit more freedom. So, I'm going to give you the household budget." You're going to have money. You can run the house more freely. And and that's like my gift to you is that household budget. And that's basically the compromise that Will gives to her. It's like, you get, Will, you're going to stay here, but you will be master of the home, which is like an old separate spheres idea, right? Um, but uh, it, it, it works to overcome this fight they're having this feeling of confinement because carol's been searching for like a purpose she hasn't had it at home she hasn't been able to find it in the public sphere but will gives her then control of the home all right now there's no kids so there's there's that not that element of it yet but there's still like the house he's, he's wealthy enough that it's not an insignificant amount of money so she's able to impose some control over that so it is a it is a bit of a coup for carol even if we might think it's it's rather minor so I guess that gets us through uh, this uh, bunch of uh, these chapters. I think it's good stuff. I, I think this is a, great, a really good novel. Uh, I wonder why I hadn't read it before. Um, but I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it, which I'll probably do in the next couple of days. And then I'll, I'll share my, um, my views of, of it then. Um, 
So anyways, let me know what you think of Main Street if you've read it. Oh, what, do you know, what do you think of these characters and her her challenges uh, and her isolation and how she tries to overcome them. Um, I think there's so many... This is so good, on, I think, on the culture wars of the of this period of American history. That's what I think. That's what I get out of this more than anything else. I think, but also good gender stuff about like, you know, what role do women have? What role do these middle class women have in society outside of their marriage? Can they create spaces outside of their marriage? For most of the women who go for prairie, they're going to say, well, they'll have some space, but they don't really think it's that important to change things that's not their role right it's like a conservative role um but of course you have women at the time who are quite radical and and want to change their their position like carol's you know adjacent to those women even though she's not fully i guess brave enough to fully embrace them so uh yeah that's going to be it for now um thanks for listening uh send me an email uh uh, hundred pages uh, cast at gmail.com or you can send me a Twitter at uh, at E-V-A-N-L-A-M-P-E-1 uh, and I'll, that's where I spend most of my days actually. I'm more likely to respond to that than an email these days. So um, that's it. I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Waiting for me, praying for me down a the folks up north will see me no more when I go to that Swanee Shaw. Swanee, Swanee, I am coming back to Swanee. Mammy, Mammy.